0: called the Bible Majors Lounge, which was a place where nerdy Bible Major people sat around on couches and talked about things that would bore all of you, probably to death, with probably too much passion and fervor. And uh, that's what the building looked like there. It was a very nice building on campus, looked lovely. And there was this little room, and we would talk about things. And uh, one day, we were sitting in there near finals, and a married couple walked in. Uh, The husband was a Bible student and he had been working on his last set of papers before he graduated and they came in and it was obvious that they had a story to tell and that there was both some laughter and some tension behind their story. We're like, guys, what's going on? What happened? And so they said, well, the deal was I was working on my paper and I was just into it all day, all weekend, type, 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 type. And his wife had started to feel like, I want to do something kind for him, something to help him out while he's working so hard. And she knew that he loved good old-fashioned southern sweet tea. And so she had taken a jar, she filled it with water, she put in the tea bags, and she put it out on the porch to make sun tea. All right. I don't know if you realize this sun tea tastes better than other tea. I don't know why. But when the when the sun bakes the tea, it just has a better flavor. And so she this would be kind of an all day project. You know, she put it in, put it out there, let it sit out in that Arkansas sun for three or four hours and get, you know, nice and tea, you know, lots and lots of sugar in it. And then she had to put it in the fridge and cool it down. Then she filled up a glass full of ice poured a little bit of tea. Why you have to have that much ice to tea, I don't know, but that's the way they do it, right? And so there's this huge glass of bristling, awesome sweet tea to give him that little kick of nostalgia and caffeine and sugar to help push him through the end of the paper, right? And so she walks in the room, and he's beleaguered at his computer, and he sees the tea, and his face just lights up, right? This is just the best little surprise in the middle of his day. And she walks over to hand it to him, and there are books all over the floor. And she trips over the book, the glass goes flying through the air, and the tea lands right on top of the computer. The entire circuit board, memory, everything just in one fell swoop. The whole paper, gone. And they looked at each other and she's like, you know, like she's feeling terrible and he's feeling terrible because he knows she was trying to be sweet and his books are all over the place. It's kind of his fault for being messy, but he was so in the middle of the paper that he was just kind of tossing it here and there. And they came in and they kind of laughed and cried about the story all at once because he had to start from scratch. Uh, Maybe you've had one of those moments in your life with technology, Right it's getting better the autosave functions are wonderful nowadays things are getting autosaved to a cloud so that we are saved from many of these concerns but if you're at least my age you maybe had that experience of oh no did i click save before i closed right or you're working so hard you forget your battery on the laptop's about to run out and the computer shuts down and you go What was on there? How much, when was the last time I saved my work? And that feeling where all of your work is just gone, just disappears in a moment. I kind of bring up that idea because we're going to talk today about a situation where people had a lot of work, a lot of value in their life that was gone like that. Right, just like a glass of sweet tea to the motherboard, people had something just ripped away and taken from them. And hopefully even in that silly example, you feel a little bit emotionally what it feels like when what you've built is gone and how you move forward in that. We're working on, uh, we're gonna start a new series between now and June. Um, And basically, it's going to be a study of the minor prophets, okay? Um, It's not going to be all the minor prophets because we studied a few of them in Bible study last year. We're doing Jonah right now. I don't want to be repetitive. But we're basically going to do a book of the Bible a week. Okay, these are relatively small books. And some of the idea is this idea of like a rare vintage. These are things, these are books that frankly, we don't read a whole lot. Um, Some of them, I would hazard to guess, are going to be books that you have never heard a sermon on. And hopefully we'll find that they're still valuable to us. They still tell us something about life. Um, they can still help us to understand God's work in the world. And so each week we'll have a different book. Uh, this week we're going to start with the book of Joel and just talk about what you what, what happens when you lose something in life, when your work is taken away. Um, so Joel is a lot about locusts, okay? That seems unusual, right? Like, books of the Bible, it would seem locusts would be an odd topic, maybe. But we've heard of locust hordes, right? The swarms moving around, taking crops. This is what Joel is about. In fact, Joel is about it in such a way that we cannot place Joel historically. Joel is so um, either generic or universally applicable, however you want to say it, that it's really hard to place where it is in history, because it could have happened at almost any given time. And the book deals largely with this big group of locusts that are going to come in and destroy Israel's crops. Uh, It's funny because there are so many words for locusts that we don't know all of the words for locusts, okay? Uh, This is a classic verse um, when you study Hebrew at all. Uh, we, We don't have entomology guides for the ancient world, okay? So notice how the translators are taking guesses here at what's going on. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. And what the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. And what the young locusts have left, here's a great one, other locusts have eaten, right? Which you have here are four technical terms for kinds of locusts, and our modern American translators are going, I I don't know. You know, that one looks like maybe it means big, and that that one means other, okay? That means another another breed, another part of locusts we don't know, because there's so many words used for these annoying little bugs in this letter and it, it's kind of an interesting thing um, to kind of debate exactly what's going on some people think that locust here is a metaphor for the military for like the Assyrians invading uh, Jerusalem or J- Jerusalem invading Israel right this idea that the uh, locust horde is not really coming to kill their crops it's a foreign army coming to kill their land other people will say it the opposite way. They'll say, no, 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 the stuff about soldiers is merely a metaphor for the locusts, and the locust, hurt, uh, the locust cloud is the real problem. And some people say it's a little bit of both. But we have just this picture of um, total devastation and what it looks like to lose what you have in um, a swarm of locusts. chapter 2 of Joel. Sound the trumpet in Jerusalem. Raise the alarm on my holy mountain. Let everyone tremble in fear because the day of the Lord is upon us. It is a day of darkness and gloom, a day of thick clouds and deep blackness. Suddenly, like dawn spreading across the mountains, a great and mighty army appears. Nothing like it has ever been seen before or will ever be seen again. Fire burns in front of them, and flames follow after them. Ahead of them the land lies as beautiful as the Garden of Eden, but behind them is nothing but desolation. No one thing escapes. They look like horses. They charge forward like war horses. Look at them as they leap among the mountaintops. Listen to the noise they make like the rumbling of chariots, like the roar of fire sweeping across a field of stubble, or like a mighty army moving into battle. Fear grips all the people. Every face grows pale with terror. The attackers march like warriors and scale city walls like soldiers. Straightforward, they march, never breaking rank. They never jostle each other. Each moves in exactly the right position. They break through defenses without missing a step. They swarm over the city and run along its walls. They enter all the houses, climbing like thieves through the windows. The earth quakes as they advance and the heavens tremble. The sun and moon grow dark. The stars no longer shine. The Lord is at the head of the column. He leads them with a shout. This is his mighty armor army, and the fo- they follow his orders. The day of the Lord is awesome, terrible thing. Who can possibly survive? It's kind of fun poetry. I mean, it's kind of creepy when you actually see just like thousands and thousands of those to imagine living Like, particularly in the ancient world, you don't have doors that, you know, shut nice and tight. And you're just sitting in your house, and just hundreds of them start swarming into your home, right? It had to be terrifying. I mean, besides just being destructive and gross, it would just be weird and scary, right? Those things are weird. And Joel gives us this example of this invading army. And we have to, for a minute, think it's not just like, For us, we have a bug problem, we get an exterminator, right? For these people, it destroys their lives. Many of these people are living as subsistence farmers, right? Every year's crop is that year's food. And if you don't get a crop, you don't eat. And you can imagine the terror of working all year to try to make sure that you've grown enough food to take care of your family over the winter, and then you hear that sound of all of those grasshoppers coming in. And you think, I'm about to lose it all. (coughs) Just another glass of tea in the computer, right? Just gone. And it it sometimes is separate from us or different from us because we don't live in that kind of culture, right? Um, We're far more terrified that a computer virus might wipe out our bank account, right? Like, there's something that's terrible. I remember, remember the old Sandra Bullock movie, The Net, way back in the 90s, and basically somebody came in and erased her life, right? Took all of her records and digitally got rid of them, so she doesn't exist as a person anymore. And this is kind of, I think, what it would feel like to just lose everything. And you can, we can't maybe imagine very well what that would feel like, because we don't live in that kind of uh, economy, but I think we can understand what it feels like in other ways, right? These look, Locusts growing through the field might be like knowing that the cancer is spreading in your body or that your debt is continuing to get bigger and bigger and bigger or that fight with a loved one that keeps going another month and another month and another month or an addiction that keeps taking things from your life or maybe it's just your own pride in all the relationships it slowly eats up as it moves through the field of your life. We know what it's like to lose stuff and to feel like, where did it go and how do I get it back? And that's what the book of Joel is about. How do you recover when you have lost so much? And Joel, it's interesting because there's kind of two phases here. This first phase is the destruction. Well, there's two phases of recovery. There's this destruction and then Joel gives some hope after that. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Blow the, below the trumpet in Zion. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. "'Gather the people, consecrate the assembly, bring together the elders, gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the, excuse me, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep before the portico and the altar. Let them spare, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God?' When we have these hard things, uh, a lot of times we start playing the, the fault game, right? When something bad happens, when the tea went into the computer, it would be easy to say, it's your fault for leaving the book on the ground or it's your fault for bringing me this big glass of tea, right? And when bad stuff happens, we can, we can get that way. We can start blaming other people. We can start seeing, why am I suffering this, right? The classic cry of why me is always based on the assumption that I don't deserve it, right? And so there's this call here to repentance. Joel explains this coming locust horde and how it's going to destroy their crops. And he goes, you know, you should turn around and try to repent. You should ask God to relent. You should say you're sorry for the things in your life that aren't the way they should be. That it's natural when we face hard things to reconsider how connected we are to God. Uh, He also says, and that's a good thing because God's really quick to turn things around for you if you'll ask. Um, Those of us that have been in Bible study, did you notice the language that's in Jonah, right? When they come to the king of Assyria, what does the king of Assyria say? Who knows? Maybe God will relent. The exact same phrase is here in Joel, right? And it's a verse that we'll talk about in Jonah this week, that God is slow to anger and compassionate and gentle, right? There's this idea that when we have these hard things, if we turn to God, God can help fix them. Then the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. The Lord replied to them, I am sending you grain, new wine, and olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. I will drive the northern horde far from you, pushing it into a parched and barren land. Its eastern ranks will drown in the dr- Dead Sea, and its western ranks in the Mediterranean Sea, and its stench will go up, its smell will rise. Surely he has done great things. Do not be afraid, land of Judah, do be, be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Do not be afraid, you wild animals, for the pastures in the wilderness are becoming green." The trees are bearing their fruit, the fig tree and the vine yield their riches. Be glad, people of Zion, rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains because he is faithful. He sends you abundant showers both autumn and spring rains as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain, the vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locusts and the young locusts, the other locusts and the locust swarm, my great army that I set among you. You will be, have plenty to eat until you are full and you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel and I am the Lord your God and there is no other. Never again will your, my people be shamed. So this is about restoration, right? This is about getting the crops back. God says, all these things that you have lost, I will repay. There's even that really awesome and gross part where he talks about, I will push out the locusts and I will drown them, and there will be so many dead locusts that the stench of their corpses will come up from the ground, right? Yuck! That is lots of dead bugs. Um, but there's this sense here that if you return to God and you keep going, you can recover, you can survive things. This is a really important lesson. There are sometimes where we get into a place where life does feel hopeless where we're dealing with something and we feel like we've lost something. We feel like we are not ever going to make it out of that hole. And this is just a passage of hope where Joel goes, no, God will get rid of your problems. You'll start seeing the rains again. The rain will come when it's supposed to come. In Israel, they had autumn rains and spring rains to help different sort of crops grow. That's going to happen again. You're going to regrow your crops. You're going to re-get all that food that you've lost. Don't worry. Life can keep going. And so it sounds like a very generic message, but it's important that sometimes in life when we feel like we've lost something, God says, if you just stick with it, I will make it up to you. I will help you get back to where you need to be, right? And those of us who have been through different things have experienced that. There are those of us who have been, how am I ever going to get out of this financial hole? And then two or three years later, we go, oh, wow, we got out of that financial hole, you know, or how am I ever going to fix this thing that I said? And then later on, the relationship has been mended because you've tried to deal with it. And God says that you can fix things in life. But the really cool thing, the reason that I went to this passage and what we're leading up to in chapter 2 is it doesn't just end with restoration. It doesn't just end with you lost your crops, but now you got them back. It doesn't just end with you get back what you lost. God takes it one step further. And afterward... For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So this is a passage you probably know pretty well from your New Testament, right? This is a passage that Peter uses as the center of his sermon on the day of Pentecost. The, as they're starting the church, the Holy Spirit has come upon Peter and the disciples. They are calling people to repent and to be baptized. And it's sort of the launching point of the church in the book of Acts. And at the center of that sermon, Paul pulls out this passage in the middle of a chapter about locusts. And the reason he does it is because there is a hope of not just after the calamity, but after, after the calamity, Right? That sometimes in life, God doesn't just make up what you've lost, but sometimes He uses that loss to propel you to something even greater, something even further. Right? If you look at it, this chapter in some ways mimics a little bit what we talked last week. Last week on Easter, we talked about death and resur- we talked about the death of Jesus and then the resurrection of Jesus. And that kind of fits with sort of the loss of these crops and then getting the crops back. But the story does not end there. The, the Christian story of Jesus is not just death and resurrection. It's death and resurrection and enthronement, where Jesus is given new power and new authority, and the Spirit pours out on the church. And that's foreshadowed all the way back here in Joel. You lost your crops, but God will give them back, And someday you are going to be not even worried about them because not only are you going to have your crops back, but you're going to have the Spirit of God in your life. And men and women and kids and old folks and everybody is going to have the Spirit of God in their lives. And so I felt like this passage really naturally connects between Easter and Pentecost because this is the core of that message. This idea that God not only takes your suffering, but can take it further Maybe we've all known somebody who has suffered something and as they come out the other end of it, there can be something really truly amazing, right? Sometimes the suffering that we have in life, the loss that we have in life, the difficulties that we have, not only do we overcome them, but they can propel us to do something else. They can compel us to care more and to think more. We can use those hurts then to help other people. We can sort of become triumphant in them. God gives his spirit to not only make up what has been lost, but to give you overflowing and more. And that's the beauty of Joel, is that these locusts are the start of a process that will go not from just worrying about what you're going to eat, but whether or not you experience the spirit of God in your life. As a church, um, we have one, uh, four core values, right? I was talking about this the other day. Our four core values at the feast are Family, trajectory, generosity, dialogue, yes, got all four, awesome, I'm feeling good. Dialogue, family, generosity, and trajectory, and trajectory was always a hard one, it was always the one we had to explain, but it really fits into what this we're talking about today. The idea of trajectory is that your life has started somewhere to getting to here, and God wants to take it somewhere else. But that usually you don't just flush the past, right? You can flush the guilt of the past. You can flush the, um, the shame. You can flush the definition. You don't have to be defined by who you were. But God often uses those things, right? It's former addicts who often make the best helpers in recovery because they've been there and they know what that's like. And so your life can move somewhere. Your locus experience can then give you the opportunity to have the spirit pour out and to speak in your children and your grandparents and all that kind of stuff. Um, So as we wrap up today, I just uh, pray that you would see kind of the power in a passage like this in Joel. That ultimately um, tears of pain can become tears of joy. And when hard things happen, when that gut-wrenching moment right the the tea in the computer moment does not have to be the end not only can you get back to where you were but you can excel past it because often god's story is about devastation and death followed by resurrection and new life and then powered through to just new hope and new power that we never had before and it doesn't always make sense, but often it's those difficult things that prepare us to be in a place to do the work God has for us later on. Um, I pray that this week uh, that God can work through us all uh, and that we can uh, repent when we have things that we should. Like in Joel, we can turn back to God to find him quick to, to, uh, to be gracious. But that in all of our hurts, that we can not only be restored, but even moved past restoration into kind of new power and new life and new growth all right what questions might you have about the sermon today i think the way some people would look at it is that he um is that he'll he's telescoping time a bit and that he's saying we're having all this disaster now but then we're going to get new life and then ultimately there will be a day when we don't have to worry about this stuff anymore Right? And so he's kind of talking about at least, yeah, at least 2,500 years of history. And every day is a day longer that he's talking about, right? That he's looking all the way forward to the day that Jesus will come back and this kingdom will be established. Of course, Joel isn't going to call him Jesus because he doesn't have that language. But a day when the messianic kingdom comes and the restoration of Israel is completed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, so, yes, often with these prophecies, we find that they work cyclically, that they kind of explain cycles of life that we go through, but that they're also meant to be big, overarching storylines of humanity's existence and, and life. And it, it's all perspective, right? I mean, a year of suffering doesn't mean that much if you're looking at a 5,000-year block. <laughs> and so it's. I do think there's some of that telescoping of history what we do see is this unending christian philosophy and jewish philosophy that ultimately the world would be better and fixed right that we're marching towards a better day we're not stuck eternally in cycles of destruction and recreation and we're not in a slow downward descent into destruction but that we're moving towards a day when god's kingdom fully fills the world and the jewish idea of that i think heavily borrows through from prophetic perspectives on history Yeah, yeah, exactly.